0: This is Healing Choices, conversations on addiction and recovery. The New Year has begun, and people across America have resolved to change something in their life. Whether it be to get more exercise, cut down on carbs, or perhaps a greater commitment to give up alcohol, drugs, or other addictive substances. But committing to a lifestyle change is hard, and studies show that about 80% of all New Year's resolutions fail. In the context of addiction recovery, about 85% of people in recovery relapse within the first year. In this episode, Mel Taylor and Lori Feaster, both leaders in the Houston addiction recovery community, discuss what it takes to truly quit something, whether it's a simple bad habit or a developed addiction.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Mel Taylor, and I'm the president uh, and CEO of the Council on Recovery and I'm excited to be here uh, to talk about uh, the council and services and programs. I've been doing this work for about 27 years. I'm a social worker by training and in recovery. So I'm excited to, to start a dialogue with one of my uh, favorite people on the planet, Lori Feaster, who joins us this morning. Howdy.
2: Well, good morning and thank you for having me. I am Lori Feaster, I am a clinical social worker and the clinical director of the center for recovering families at the council on recovery. I've been here myself for about 14 years and, uh, just a baby social worker still.
1: That's right. We know what we don't know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I. you know, I'm excited. to First, let me say Happy New Year. Happy Be the New last Year. person to say Happy New Year. It is 2020. Um, I know that I made a number of, I don't make resolutions, but I did set a few personal goals as I was... Mm-hmm pondering things uh, for this coming year, and um, let's talk a little bit about those. I mean, how many people, it's what, mid-January right now, my guess is, I, I couldn't guess, how many people do you think have kept their resolutions?
2: Well, if if I'm looking at clients, um, we do usually get an upsurge in January because this is a time when many people think they want to stop drinking or using drugs or other compulsive behaviors. And this is the time when people start coming in because it's not so easy. Um, so those resolutions and the promises to themselves and the promises to their family and loved ones, um, start to dissolve when they see that they can't do it alone. And so we get to see, uh, those folks and help them on their way. So I'm going to say, you know, a couple days to a week, we start seeing <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the folks that just can't, um, do this on their own, which yeah. is good news that we are here to help and, um, get them on their path.
1: If people stick to it, what do you think their likelihood of continuing on a path? If they're looking to cut down on drinking or cut down or quit drugging, uh, how long do you think it's, it, it really takes before it to becomes ingrained or more habitual in their, in their lifestyles?
2: Well, you know, the research says sometime we look at some markers, 30, 60, 90 days as our brains really taking hold of the change in their behavior and the change of our thoughts, too. But, you know, when we see true uh, people making changes, it takes years. Um, Science says five (laughs) for our brain to get back to what it used to be, if even that's available
1: yeah i would totally agree with you i it's a it's a long haul it's a long project and uh of course the the first the first step in that process is being willing to and recognizing that we have an issue we Mm -hmm. want to address Mm -hmm. uh as the as as they say in 12 steps first you got to know you have a problem Mm -hmm. uh and breaking that down but uh I see too in my own recovery, um, there there are things even now that I want to cut back on. Sugar. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. how difficult that is. Um, and and I play games with myself. Mm-hmm. I play mind games. Well, maybe I can do this today, or maybe I can do the I can I can start tomorrow. How do we offset that? What well, do you think? <laughs>
2: I so appreciate that. I think there's very many books called I'll Start Tomorrow. I'm (laughs) not sure. Um, But one of the things is uh, when we offset it, um, when we have those failures and we're able to keep on getting up, I think that's the key. That's the key to making us more healthy. It's when we give up and stop and just allow the addiction to enfold us. As someone recovering from anorexia and bulimia, I still struggle with sugar and salt and those things. uh, My sister brought this peanut brittle that just killed me. (laughs) And it wasn't so much that I ate that, but once I started, it started the onslaught of my mind it triggered the old, old, very old, I'm talking 16 yeah. years old when I struggled wow. with this stuff, wow. um, all those old messages and the feeling. So just like you say, you're playing mind games, you know, certainly, oh, I'll only have this one piece. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I'm obsessing on that next piece. Yeah. Um, until I brought that tub of peanut brittle here. <laughs>
1: how, what's the, what, in your opinion, I get to ask this question a lot around how do you know you're addicted mm. versus how do you know you're just abusing?
2: You know, often people, when they're coming to us, they don't know. I mean, they're, they're coming because somebody is complaining or they've had some sort of consequence that says something's wrong. The, the addiction piece, I think usually, at, at least of how I've experienced it, comes from other people saying this is what you've got to do. And then the brain clears enough to see the consequences once I have a little something underneath my belt. Um, we start to see it if we're looking at substance, we start to see it when it becomes a physical issue. If, if we speak about alcohol, it's usually when I'm having those blackouts. It's when I'm then having maybe the physical shakes or the night sweats or the nausea, where I'm obsessing about drinking in the morning to feel better from the night before. These are the things that the body's telling me. Ugh. I love you. I love this substance. Feed me now. You keep it going. Keep it going. And, and my, everything in my bones say to do so despite what I see around me. Yeah, and, we
1: we used to say you're continuing the behavior despite the adverse consequences. Right, right. Yeah, my favorite operational definition of addiction was the gentleman that had part of his throat removed uh, because of cancer, throat, throat and cancer, and was smoking through a, his, a trach
2: right.
1: uh, cut in the middle of his neck right. and continuing to do that. That's well, more graphic. How does that show up uh, whoa, for you? you see
2: what we call or what we'd say that that is denial but what that is is the brain's divisiveness of way of lying to us giving information to us that's not true well i still you know despite these consequences everything's fine Um, despite my significant other threatening divorce she's she's just not good or he's just not Whatever. Where we, we have blinders on. And, that, and that's how I explain to families. It's like if you, for the example, if you put your hands over your eyes, this is what the addict sees. Mm-hmm. You see very little of the truth. Right. And when we start to have some clarity is when we start to have some sobriety. We start to feel better pretty soon after we stop drinking. Um, the physicality, the brain starts to clear, my body starts to feel better, um, the world looks a little brighter. Um, yeah.
1: I'm laughing. I used to think about, you know, the, I've, I've heard stories. Um, uh, I never slept well when I was drinking, and I sleep so much better now that I'm not drinking, but I hear stories about people waking up from a black out in the middle of the night and going to bed with a a little shot of something whiskey or Kahlua or something by their bedside so when they have that jolting wake up they drink again and I don't miss any of those those kinds of things but you talk about them you know how to get started I mean what's what's what do we do if we're thinking about quitting we we call that in you know pre-contemplation or I'm thinking about quitting how do we move it further down the road?
2: Well, as we always say here, um, the the council is a great place to start. Um, I think it's really important to get assessed, to find out from a professional, where am I in this continuum? Because it can look pretty scary, even somebody who is just abusing alcohol. And I don't mean to minimize just, because some of us have, uh, the just is they'd have consequences. There's physical, there can be legal, um, um, all kinds of things. Um, when I think about that continuum, um, it's really important to see where we are and then make an appropriate decision. And I would say to make an appropriate decision with your loved ones because you might not necessarily be seeing all of the facts and your loved ones can help you with those facts Mm -hmm. because they've been living most likely sober with you. (laughs) And so they probably have more clarity. But, you know, when you get an assessment, you, you can find out diagnostically where you are. And often, too, this just doesn't come with just the addiction. We usually have something else going on. There might be anxiety or depression or, you know, we see a lot of PTSD. We do live in Houston where there's all kinds of things that happen here. And so part of we want to see what's going on and be able to help that person get where they need to go. If it's not with us, we have so many contacts and relationships throughout our state and here to help people get where they need to go.
1: So like that country song, I'm lonesome because I drink or I drink because I'm lonesome. Mm -hmm. Well, let's find out. Go get, go, go what we call an assessment. Go talk to a professional. Um, And it may be that you're not addicted. Right. It may be that you simply have gotten into some really bad habits. Absolutely. And those bad habits work for you in some kind of way until they don't.
2: There's a, there's a lot of people that abuse alcohol because of issues, of problems. I mean, I knew with this hurricane in Harvey, there was a lot of increased drinking. A lot of folks didn't necessarily meet the threshold of a diagnostic, but they were drinking because they couldn't go back to their normal coping mechanism for one reason or another. So it's a wonderful way to say, oh, look at this, and let's, let's help you with some other coping tools so you can reduce your drinking. Those folks may never have to step anywhere near Uh, treatment in this episode
1: so i you you mentioned a lot of things going on i know during harvey and and in in previous hurricanes and floods which the houston area is certainly prone to we i know in my own world the understanding about you know oh heck it's going to flood what do we do and i get traumatized i get nervous and i want to cope I want to find a way to, you know, I'm more likely to think about drinking uh, during those kinds of things when I'm just living my life daily and practicing, going to meetings or doing what I'm doing, seeing my counselor and so forth. Talk a little bit about some of the underlying things that can occur in, in a person's life that might cause them difficulty in, in deciding to quit. That's
2: a really good question. I think... Um you know, we, usually it's a consequence that they bump up against. It's pretty interesting to see how many people get arrested for drinking and driving. Um, and for their report, it's their first or second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and these consequences can be quite costly, you know, up to 25,000 for a single arrest, yeah. Yeah. Um, which then also can involve your career. Um, future job prospects because you have you have to answer you've been arrested and if convicted, there's another issue. So um, often these are the things that get people to kind of wake up. Um, you know, there's a lot of, we see a lot of underlying anxiety and depression. And oftentimes when folks can learn tools to how to cope with just those illnesses and also learn the stigma around that and see what's going on because, you know, most people have something going on with them. Right. We right. N- There's not many people that are just running through the meadow <laughs> happy as larks. You know, it's oh, yeah. we, we live in this world and it's not an easy world all the time. Yeah. So it's about finding ways of you know, coping and getting to that place. We see many U-turns of stopping drinking because alcohol is a depressant. And, of course, your illicit drugs, you know, they're illicit, <laughs> they're illegal, yeah. so there's consequences to those. But
1: they work sometimes to it's, address pain or address nervousness well, or anxiety. I mean, they do.
2: Our favorite marijuana, in the sense of when I say our yeah. favorite, that's what may, most people utilize to settle that anxiety issue. Um, kind of keeps them in the middle. And as much as that may sound good, it is still a drug that can cause addiction. Yeah. And and with that also, that drug is also pretty powerful these days. Yeah. We see a lot of things happen. Yeah.
1: Not to mention the mental illness that ensues from... Um, you know, really trying those drugs and not knowing how they're going to affect me. Yeah. Uh, I know for for my marijuana use, there was paranoia. Was you know the old old cliche? Paranoia strikes deep. It did. <laughs> I was so paranoid. I was. I had to quit. I mean, even even back in the early days of my uh, acting out and in, in not in using using marijuana and alcohol primarily. Um, so denial, it's a, it's a crazy word. Um, talk about a little bit. I, I, I see that a lot. I hear people say, yeah, I was going to quit, but, or I quit for a few weeks. Some of the programs out there now, there's like the the Sober January you know, people are, you know, going at quitting for a while. And do you think that work? Do they have an impact? Are they, are they, are they worth trying? Or what's your thought about them?
2: Well, you know, I, I usually look at when somebody says to me, so I've had many clients that just will not, you know, okay, I've, I've assessed them and maybe their alcohol use, dependent at a medium level but they're I mean they're having some severe side effects too um, but they're not willing to stop but I say okay let's try 30 days so they'll consider that and they'll get that they'll get on the bandwagon and they're they're waiting for that 30th day and if that's what gets the start I'm saying let's rock on because my prayer in the middle of that is they'll start to see the benefits and attach to those benefits um, and, and then have some clarity as the brain clears. Um, long term, I mean, if they continue to do this, it's, it's usually we've got, the, we've got the pathways already built in the brain. If I'm abusing the, the drug, I've already have a fairly big pathway to receive the information. The receptors are built. It's just waiting for that next drop. And then when I give it the next drop, it's full on. If it doesn't start, then it will start with continued use. I mean, it's just kind of science.
1: I mean, alcohol is chronic. Yeah. Alcoholism is a chronic and progressive disease. Okay. It takes more and more to drink and more and more to, to open those pathways. And it's progressive. Right. Um, and, and over time, the body starts breaking down, the mind starts breaking down. Uh, and we can't keep doing what we're doing and saying, oh, I'll quit tomorrow. Yeah. The idea of quitting the idea of quitting and then starting and then quitting and then starting. Denial. Yeah. It hurts to quit, whether I'm quitting drinking or whether I'm gonna lose, try to lose 15 pounds. I get started. And then the mind games kick in. We call that denial. Mm-hmm. The body starts sending out signals. This hurts. Don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about denial and its impact and what it does. And how do we, how do we break that down? How do we address denial in a clinical way?
2: Well, we, we really want to help them see the positives. You know, two, let, let me go back just a little bit. The, bo- the brain is wired for negativity, in the sense that it is, that's how we've survived. We, you know, we were constantly on the lookout for the T. Rex to come and eat us. Um, well, today is a different story. We're not looking for that, but we have a lot of things in our world that are just negative, negative. and so we're going to help that person look in a sense of self-care. So we're going to be teaching them how to avoid triggers, how to deal with triggers, um, so the body doesn't then go into the old way of protecting itself. So when the denial is fairly deep um, and we all have it, I mean this is the part of the brain that's saying feed me and it's strong and you know I think that it depends upon also how much you can suffer. I have a high bottom I don't do very well at suffering I'm kind of one of those pampered girls that if it hurts I'm going to stop it because I, I just can't do it I choose not to you know but I know a lot of people can suffer greatly so we really want to help them find that place of less suffering um, to give them that experience and when we can give them an experience the 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 shield of the or the mask of the denial starts to slip, and then they can begin to see color again. I guess that's how I could yeah. describe it. You start to see the color. You start to feel the warmth of the sun, as opposed to this "feed me, Seymour" kind of deal. Um, I gotta have it. I gotta have it now. I'm slowing down, and and I'm I might even recognize a feeling. Yeah, <laughs> I might recognize a you know something that's happening inside my body and pay attention to it and then nurture it. So these are the we want to teach them these skills. We want to help them. And, and one of the biggest things that I think assists not only in our program but in the world of our 12 step is the connection with another being that is like us. You know, that's uh, I believe is why the 12 step is so successful is because when we can find connection and belonging, then we are most likely have more opportunity of staying sober. Because then I have found you know, a little bit of love. I have found a little bit of something, something within me and within you.
1: Reinforcement of I'm not in this alone. Right. I've got some colleagues, some women and men who want to help me, and they want to help themselves just as much, and we yeah. help each other. And it's
2: not just me in the sense of shame. Right. You know, I'm not. I'm not the only— lower than worm poop person in this world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not this lazy, shiftless moral character who can't quit drinking.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. Recognition that I have a disease and that uh I'm walking a new path with others who are here to help me and get through this and we're all going to get through it together, which of course is one of the core values of a of a twelve step Uh program or any sort of support program, whether it's twelve step or other.
2: And and while we're on that, I'm going to kind of diverge just a little bit oftentimes our clients have a big difficulty getting into 12-step because they haven't had connection in so long. They might still have connection within their system, their family system, but they're alone. And to go into a new environment is terrifying. They may use lots of excuses of why it doesn't work or why this isn't right for me. They often you know, we'll say it's a religious issue. I don't believe in God, so I can't go. And even if we tell them it's a spiritual practice, oh, no, it's not for me. I mean, I would, a personal experience is my father was uh, sober eight years of his entire 59, I mean, sorry, eight months of his entire 59 years of living. And that's what he utilized to say, I'm not going to be sober. Um, and quickly went back to drinking because I don't believe in this Spirit thing, yeah. or this God thing. God thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, he di- He died from the disease. So it was, um, it was one of those things that that denial was so great yeah. that he couldn't look past.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the the whole idea of a spiritual. The part of this. Uh, in my own experience, I think it requires something of an inner, a deep inner experience. They call it sometimes a spiritual awakening, mm-hmm. but a recognition that this isn't working anymore whatever I'm doing in my life, I have to make some deep changes. And, and I realized for me, I didn't do it for anyone else. I did it for myself. Mm-hmm. I could not keep doing what I had been doing. I could not behaving the same way, making the same bad choices. And what, what I've come to understand in my own recovery is how much I value the feelings that come with being sober, that come with not medicating. And I wanna feel what I feel every day and know what it is that I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And I'll accept if I'm feeling sad or mad, uh, and I won't won't anymore, oh, I don't wanna not feel that way. You know a lot of people society says we should be in pleasure all the time we should always seek fun and excitement and pleasure go to the happy hour bar It's called happy hour uh, and, and, and yet you know in our life life is ups and downs life is a combination of feelings mm-hmm. and and I've learned in recovery to accept each of those feelings that, that I can learn from being sad I can learn from being angry I can understand that's my mind and body saying hey you <laughs> Think about this. Maybe do some work on why you're sad. Do some work on your relationship. Do some work on things. I couldn't do that when I was drinking. I was too clouded by sort of a numbness that that wasn't letting me really feel deeply. And as a man, you know, we're taught not to show our feelings a lot of times. So it can be daunting, I think, walking in to a room full of strangers and listening and sharing. But I will promise people are listening this take that first step there's much gold in those rooms much opportunity in those rooms and you don't need to say a word you can simply listen to people and find out you're not alone and that to me is is very very important absolutely i want to i want to talk about in in my our world that because we work together at the council on recovery i want to talk a little bit about relapse Mm -hmm. I have been concerned for years um, that, and we call it relapse, because we go back to the old behavior. We, we are trying to quit something or trying not to abuse something, and then our old habits and our old patterns uh, intervene and we're back to where we were. Uh, some people saying they went back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talk about relapse. Why do you think it's such a, a pervasive Thing in you know, with people who are addicted, and what can really be done about relapses? Is is, is it just part of the deal, or can we really prevent it?
2: Yes. <laughs> Um, I think that there absolutely there's ways to prevent in the sense, but this is a disease, and and part of the disease. You know, when I think about someone relapsing, I'm not just so disappointed in them. It, it's there's learning needed, right. and hopefully that they get to have a little more understanding of what that's about. Um, I, but I've also known people who've been sober 33 years, 50 years without relapsing. And and it's not a good or bad deal. So I have to be mindful of that. It it is what it is. It takes people what it takes to get sober. Um, But I think that when we are in our recovery, whether it is treatment or you're doing 12 step or whatever modality is making it work for you. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to look at what gets us to use, looking at the triggers, looking at what gets us to those places we utilize patrick Carnes' three circles methods in the mm-hmm. sense of being able to look at the bottom line what what are the behaviors we want to be done with then what are the behaviors that get us to those places and then what are our, our supports and we write it out we look at it we analyze it we put it in front of our peers we really ensure that we've got what we need in front of us so that we can be mindful about that next piece, mindful and aware. Um, this is the best learning uh, in our disease. I mean, when, when I think about, let, let's just take Christmas. We just got through Christmas and New Year's. This is really a lot of things happen around there. We, we usually overeat. I mean, we're around families. The whole idea is to eat and watch football. And probably if you're in America, you drink. Um, so there's these things that go with that. Um, think about new years we're toasting at midnight i mean there are so many things that are involved around these parts of ourselves we have to be a, we have to be aware of them how how is it to go through these events sober we have to be mindful and put up a game plan so we're not caught off guard right. it, we have to use that other hypervigilance um that we have used before to be in uh, the best place we possibly can. And we're, we're, most of us are going to find a place that we get uh, surprised. And we may not have the answers at the moment. Yeah. And we may not use what we know. We may choose to go and do the drug that we do. Right. I chose to eat that peanut brittle, brittle because yeah. I really thought... It's not going to be that big a deal. I can handle it. I I can. I'm
1: really not somebody that can handle it. I can (laughs) handle a little sugar. Of course I can. Right. Right. And I hear that a lot and see it a lot. Um, Yeah, I thought that maybe now after five years... I could drink like a normal person. Mm -hmm. So I was at Christmas, and I toasted my colleagues and and family, and now it's January, and I'm back to drinking at the level that I was when I quit. Out of control, and guess what? I learned that I can't drink, that I have a disease, and and that's alcoholism. And I've heard that story many times, particularly with the stress around certain times of year where our behavior is challenged, Mm -hmm. our lifestyle is challenged, our day-to-day routines get disrupted by things like going to visit family that we may or may not really enjoy. Right. Uh, and so the lifestyle uh, of all of that. In our past, you know, we're, we're uh, I have a great friend that says, give up all hope of a better past. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as we learn to cope, with certain old behaviors that we become we get more tools in our box things we can call on over time to help us not relapse right. that's my view of it and yep. the first is the old cliche phone a friend right. reach out and to talk to someone who shares your concern and supports you and loves you and, and phone that person talk to them go see them do what's necessary uh, to continue to get through maybe that stress or that tough time um, and, and I know relapse occurs. It, it, uh, it, even in good treatment programs, relapse occurs t- more than half the time nationally statistically yes. and i think it's part of the disease it's not too different than than heart disease or diabetes or, or certain other issues that have a behavioral component Correct. right that mm-hmm. that you've got to change your behavior yep. you just can't take a pill and and you're cured yep. um we've got to work work hard at it every day whether we're losing weight or not drinking or cutting down on or quitting sugar right. um, it's a tough long game And and yet there are rewards to that long game. There are great
2: rewards, and you know one of the things that I get to see in all these years, um, clients coming back, and uh, you know just them walking and being alive because it's a miracle. And I know you've seen it. They've been on our board. They've been around. um, Just to there was a client not long ago that I met some close to ten years ago here. And the life that that person's led has been incredible and just lucky to be alive. Um, so it's, it's, it does the heart good. Um, and, and just think, we haven't even talked about the family's experience in all of this. Um, that impact on families is tremendous. Um, one, if we think one in six are affected, then all those family members too
1: and i i think yeah there's there's a, we we should probably have a conversation about family and the dynamic because one of the things that i love about the council is our focus on family we don't work just with an individual who's struggling with an addiction or a compulsive or yeah. abusing behavior but we work with the whole family and the reason we do that is because the outcomes are better yeah. if the whole family heals Absolutely. If the whole family goes into recovery together they get better outcomes yes. so uh, i think it's a probably Lori something we should mm-hmm. we should v- revisit and talk well, about that it,
2: and it is a family disease i mean when when we live in the system we are affected and we do we have ways of coping that are not healthy. Um, I'm not sitting here because I love people. <laughs> I'm sitting here because I was affected by an alcoholic in, in, a, in my home right. um, that impacted everyone in my house um, and our, and our lives were never the same
1: right. And the behavior of that person that was using every day changed me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it changed me until I became that person in many ways mm-hmm. and became the alcoholic that I said I would never be mm-hmm. because of the family member that I didn't want to be like and ended up exactly like that. Um so let's just wrap this part up maybe with a, with a thinking about, so I, if I want to quit, what's your best advice to somebody? If I just hey, I really want to quit or cut back on this behavior and I don't know what to do, what would be your best advice to a colleague or friend or someone that, you know, listening out there that said, where do I start?
2: Well, I think, you know, I'm biased. I say, come come to the council in recovery. Yeah, come course. here and, and let's assess you. Um, we're going to get you where you need to go. We're, you know, one of the lovely things about being in a nonprofit is that we're not counting on you to come here in the sense of filling a seat um, because we're going to find that money somewhere to pay for you. But if you have it, great. But we're going to we're going to get you help we need. I'm not pressured to make that sell. And, and because of all of the community partners, we know where to go. Um, and we know we have relationships with them. We can, we can get you somewhere safely
1: what i hear a lot and and is is you know walking in and asking for help can be daunting what i want people to understand is that the the folks that are here to help whether it's here or anywhere else really want to help absolutely it's not a terrifying experience it's probably more terrifying to make the decision to walk in mm-hmm. and change your life than it is to actually meet someone mm-hmm. and go through the understanding and the assessment and the evaluation but it's not not as terrifying as the outcome that if one keeps doing if one keeps drinking and one keeps using or eating too much those consequences are terrifying absolutely. and and so taking the first step even when you can't see the first the rest of the staircase <laughs> to me is an important uh, really wish and in prayer for people take well, that first step
2: absolutely and I, and I think that's usually about 50% of the work in the sense of getting through the door getting on the phone and we we have master level folks on the phone to help you. So, again, if, if they hear that the problem isn't for us, they're going to get you somewhere. Yeah. Um, but if it is something that we can look at, we're going to get you assessed. Um, you're going to see someone very soon and we will uh, connect with you and get you help.
1: And what we know is that whether it's a miracle or divine intervention mm. or good old hard work, what we know is that recovery is a brilliant, wonderful, happy, <laughs> joyous, and free place to be. Absolutely. And we encourage people to find it. Lori, thank you. Oh, it's oh, fun. It's fun,
0: yeah. Yeah, let's do this again. Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by the Council on Recovery. Houston's largest nonprofit provider of prevention, education, outpatient treatment, and recovery services. For more information on the Council's work, you can visit www.councilonrecovery.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you or your loved one needs help with an addiction or co occurring disorder, call 713 914 0556 to schedule a screening or assessment. You know someone who needs us.